Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by our campus pastor, Ian Simpkins, as we wrap up our series, Tug of War. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Well, hey, everyone. Long time. Good to see you again. <laughs> uh, I thought we'd start with a game this morning. Wouldn't that be fun? Some of you are already terrified. Uh, you're right to be scared. Um, so this game is called Which is Better? And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to pit two things against each other, and we're going to have you stand to vote for which is better. For example, uh, like if I said which is better, Coke or Pepsi, I'd first have all the people that say Coke stand up first, and then sit down, and then like the remaining six people for Pepsi would stand up. <laughs> We would pray for you, and then you would get a chance to sit down as well, uh, and that's how the game is going to work. You ready to play? All right, let's get started with something uh, maybe a little easy. We'll, we'll start with this. Uh, which is better, Apple or Android? So uh, if you say Apple, why don't you stand up where you're at, and uh, holy cow, <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. I didn't realize that many of us liked Kool-Aid. Okay, um, (laughs) why don't you go ahead and sit down, and this will be hilarious. Um, If you say Android, why don't you stand up where you're at? Yeah, oh, wah, wah. (laughs) Uh, If you're near a person who's standing right now, you might want to move a seat over in case their phone spontaneously bursts into flames. Okay, Android, you can very carefully... Sit down. Uh, This next one is in honor of my parents who are here this morning. Uh, This was a constant battle in our household. How about this? Mayo or Miracle Whip? What is that reaction? (laughs) I'm not going to make you eat it. It's okay. Okay, so so first, uh, all the mayo lovers stand where you're at. If you're a mayo lover, you guys were so weirdly passionate about that. People are like, amen, praise him. Okay, uh, go ahead and have a seat. All right, where are my Miracle Whip lovers? Where are you at? It's the zesty option, and you modeled it well. Wow, okay. Why don't you go ahead and, uh, and have a seat? The correct answer, of course, is neither. They're both so gross. It's so... What is wrong with you people? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so uh, this last one, you, you knew I was going to do it. I have to do it. Um, <laughs> I had to. All right, so uh, White Sox to your feet. Who says White Sox is better? I see you making notes like unfriend her, unfriend him. <laughs> All right, sit down. Who says Cubbies? Go ahead and have a seat, um, because we all know the correct answer is... Huh? <laughs> it's been nice serving with you all, I know. This is... <laughs> okay, so that's funny, right, when the things we disagree on are sort of inconsequential like that, but like, what about when our disagreements are about things of substance, like things we feel deep in our gut. What happens when we butt heads over issues that matter? 
Like, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of conflict these days about what we believe, right? Conflicts about politics, conflicts about morality, conflicts about theology. Now, we could spend a whole day on each of those, but today is not that day, okay? What I want to do today is to discuss what it looks like to navigate the tension between our disagreements, regardless of the topic. Because I'm convinced that as Christ followers, in this world of conflict and disagreement, many, if not all of us, feel deep in our heart this sort of tug of war. So it's clear, right? On one hand, we all hold convictions, of some kind, of some flavor. And the reality is that there's Christians, intelligent, well-read, well-informed Christians on every side of almost every debate. We've got to remember that. Yet, doesn't it sometimes feel like convictions are what keep people from feeling like we're living in Christ-like compassion? Sometimes it feels like our, our convictions almost stand in opposition to living compassionately. And some would argue that any conviction at all doesn't look like Jesus. So what happens, right? The, the battle lines get drawn. And if you're like me, we often just sort of get stuck somewhere in between the battle. Do you know what I'm saying? And it begins to feel like this real serious, deep in our stomach kind of tug of war. Conviction or Compassion. So how how do we navigate this tension? Which should win? Which is more important? Now, it's easy to feel like our circumstance, our day and age is unique, but you need to understand that this tension is not new or unique. In fact, one of Jesus' closest friends is a guy named John who records this story that I think beautifully illustrates exactly this point, the tension, the tug of war between conviction and compassion. So here's how the story kind of opens up in the Gospel of John. Uh, This crowd had begun to gather because Jesus is teaching and he's performing miracles. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the religious leaders of that time were not too thrilled with that. So on one such occasion, as they're traveling, the religious leaders in front of this crowd, they they drag and throw a woman caught in the act of adultery in front of everyone. Now before we move on, just this the opening part of this scene, there are a couple of things to note. Uh, One, these religious leaders sort of saw themselves as like God's policemen. Like it was their job not only to, to guard the law of God, but to also punish anyone who broke it. But secondly though, and, and this part's a little tougher to talk about, but in Deuteronomy, Moses actually wrote in the law, inspired by God, that the penalty for adultery was to be stoned to death. That's, that's in Deuteronomy. And so there, there is a very real tension here about what is to happen. So I want, you, I want you to keep that in mind. Because what we're not talking about is like a slap on the wrist. What's at stake here is not like a night in a jail cell. What we're talking about is a public, shameful execution. And so the stage is set. But what you don't know yet is that this, this woman that's before them, she's just a pawn in their plot. She's a pawn in their plot 
to ultimately try and trap and corner Jesus. Here's what John records. They're speaking to Jesus to say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. So they're attempting to educate Jesus, which I would assert is never a good place to start. Like, perhaps you've heard of the Bible, Jesus. We'd like to tell you about what it says in the law of Moses. Now, what do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So do you see what they're doing? It's actually pretty brilliant. They're forcing Jesus into a tension of conviction and compassion. And they feel like they have him cornered. Will he follow the law and stone her to death as it calls for? Or will he show compassion and let her off the hook? There's a few things to keep in mind. Uh, One, if he chooses conviction, right? Well, if that's what the law says, then I guess guess we got to stone her, right? He could then be accused of inciting mob violence because even though this was in the law of Moses, the Roman governance was very strict about things like that. So if Jesus stood in approval of this woman being stoned, when the Roman authorities came a-running, they could easily point to Jesus as the reason for this outburst. While the law would have been upheld, it would have been easy to put the blame on Jesus. And before I go to the second option, though, this story has always made me wonder, where's the man in this story? Have you ever thought about that? Like, as far as adultery is concerned, I'm not an expert, but I thought it took two to tango, right? Like, that's, where's he in this story? And as as I was reading that this week, I kind of had this thought. Don't we often get selective with the people we choose to have convictions about? Don't we often get caught in that trap where we pick and choose who's going to be the one that we point the finger at, the one we want to put the blame upon? Why isn't the man dragged out in the streets with this woman? Well, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are attempting to trap Jesus. And in many ways, I think we're often caught in that same temptation. But then you have this second option. Jesus' second option is compassion. And in this context, this seems like the easy yes, doesn't it? But we have to remember that the Bible was written for us, but was not written to us. This is a context and a culture very different from ours because for Jesus to let her off the hook would in essence be saying, well, your sin's not that big of a deal. So Jesus would then be accused of dishonoring the law of Moses and the religious leaders would have a whole different set of grounds to accuse him. Which I think is worth stating this morning that sin is a big deal. It's a big deal to God and it should be a big deal to us. And I probably don't have to convince anyone in this room that we, we do kind of live in a culture, right, where like anything goes, our advice is like follow your heart, right? If, if, if it feels right, go for it. But the Apostle Paul says things like this in Romans. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. That's pretty aggressive language, isn't it? Does that sound to you like Just let your heart be your guide, little foot. Just wherever it may lead you. Joseph Ratzinger, I think, put it brilliantly. This is what he said. Love without truth is blind. The truth without love is empty. Love without truth 
can't see what's really going on, but just truth without love, well, that, that's not really worth much at all. And it's, it's easy to get sucked into this, isn't it? It really is. But I would argue that compassion devoid of conviction isn't really truly love. So the, the stage is set, and the religious leader said, now step back to see which side of the rope is Jesus going to begin to pull. Now, I, I, mean, I wasn't there, but I, I would venture to guess that at this point in the scene, the tension is so thick you could cut it with a knife, right? I mean, can you picture it? A bunch of religious leaders holding rocks, ready to publicly execute this woman. And I don't mean to be crass, but she's probably not dressed, lying in the dirt in public, surrounded by a crowd, They've offered Jesus this option, this tension, and they said, you must choose. If you're in the crowd, what do you do in that point? Maybe you, like, you lean forward a little bit. Maybe you hold your breath. Maybe you cover your child's eyes. Maybe you begin to cry because you know what's about to come. The tension in this scene is very real. So what does Jesus do? He does what he often does, and he surprises everybody. When given this option, Jesus looks around the crowd, and then he kneels down, and he begins doodling in the dirt. Okay, so imagine you're one of the religious leaders in this scenario. You believe we've got him cornered. This is our moment. This is the perfect setup. You give him this option, and Jesus says, yeah, it's arts and crafts time. Let's just go ahead and, <laughs> right? So you, they're holding the rocks, ready to strike. He's doodling in the dirt, and they begin to press him even more. They're not satisfied with this doodling charade. And here's what Jesus says. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to doodling. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to the people there? A statement like that would have been unprecedented. Now, scholars don't agree on what he was writing in the dirt. We really don't know. Some some guess that maybe he's just like writing lists of sins, pride, lust, greed, deceit. Others think that maybe he was writing the names of women, like women the religious leaders would have been familiar with, like the names of women that would have exposed some of their own deep, dark secrets. And still others think that maybe he was just actually doodling, waiting for like the weight and gravity of what he just said to sink in. But with Jesus doodling in the dirt, the religious leader is probably a bit dumbfounded. We begin to hear the sound of falling rocks. Imagine you're the woman hunched on the ground, afraid, thinking through this. These are probably my last thoughts on earth. And then you begin to hear How confused must she have been? 
And after some time passes, maybe she opens her eyes for the first time and she sees that all the men have left except for this strange rabbi named Jesus, who's not just there, not folding his arms standing over her, but in the very dirt with her. A friend of ours, an author, Hugh Halter, he he describes the scene this way. He says, the powerful revelation is that the God of the universe, the only one who should have genuinely been offended, who could have postured himself as judge and executioner, literally lowers himself to her level and becomes her only friend, protector, and advocate, the one on her side. He's saying Jesus was the only one who really had any right to be upset here. Let's not forget that Jesus is still fully God. Never sinned. The one who should have thrown the first stone is not only not throwing stones, but is in the very dirt with her. I think this this posture of Jesus challenges us with a really important question, and it's this. Before challenging someone with my convictions, what if we asked, would this person say that I am for them? Would this person say that I am for them? Would asking that question of ourselves, would that change the way we interact with people on Facebook? Would it, would it change maybe the way we even talk to people in our own families, in our small groups, in our communities? What if, what if we stopped long enough to sincerely ask, does this person know that I'm for them? That I'm truly for them? I think we would all do well to pause and ask that question because it's so easy to get sucked into the temptation to throw stones, especially from the comfort of a computer screen, isn't it? We, we don't see the way that it affects the people that we say it to or about. But Jesus' example, I, I think, demonstrates a really profound truth. We must not prioritize our point over our posture. We must not prioritize our point, as valid as it may be, over our posture. And what was the posture of Jesus? I mean, quite literally, it's kneeling. It's, it's coming close. Like I, I can picture him just looking her in the eye, this woman that was, was not only shamed, but certain that her moments were numbered. And Jesus had every right to chastise her. Perhaps another way we could say it is this. Let's not make a point at the expense of making a difference. And I'll be the first to admit, this is a real temptation for me. Some of you are friends with me on Facebook, you already know this. Sometimes you get so fired up about a topic or an issue or an idea, and I wonder how many times I've lost the opportunity to make a real difference in someone's life because I was so set on making a point. What, what if, instead of making a point, we focused more on making a difference? So after all the men leave, the crowd disperses. Jesus in the dirt with this woman, he for the first time speaks to her. And here's what he says. says Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? I mean, he knew where they were, but he wanted her to see too. Where, where are they? Has no one 
condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And this is Jesus' response. And I hope you hear this. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you hear it? It's conviction and compassion, right? Jesus is perfectly living in the and. Neither do I condemn you, compassion. And then what does he say next? Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus shows us as he always does that when it comes to the tug of war between conviction and compassion, the most important word is and. And if we're gonna be a people of the and to hold both, this story needs to become our story because my guess would be that at this point, we've sort of been observers of this scene, right? And often, I think we like to think of ourselves as Jesus in most of these stories. We're the ones that respond rightly. We're the ones that respond uh, gently and compassionately, but with conviction. Here's what I wanna challenge you with this morning. When it comes to this story, you and I are the woman. We're the woman. We're the ones that stand condemned in our sin, distant from God, and it was not within our own power to clean ourselves up. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall way short of the glory of God. I'll be honest, I see this fallenness in me. I see it more and more the older that I get. I see it in my selfishness. I want my way over anyone else's. I recognize it in my anger. When I'm impatient, even with the people that I love most, when they don't meet my expectations. Myself, I recognize my bad judgment. I mean, just last week, I watched The Bachelor, and I don't know why. I don't, (laughs) I, forgive me, please, pray for me. By the letter of the law, you and I, we stand condemned in our sin. And yet, this holy, righteous, just God postures himself in the very dirt of the earth that brought him all the way to the cross. Those punches and whips he got, we deserved, and he hung on a cross, not just so that we could sermonize about it years later, so that we might live. And when we could do nothing to clean ourselves up, when we were foolish, distant, and far off, God brings us near through his son. Which I think leads to a really important truth. When we understand the compassion that we've received, we learn to show that compassion to others. When we really get it, when that really sinks deep, when we become aware of just how much grace and mercy has been shown to us, it makes it very difficult to not show grace and mercy to others. When we become more and more aware of, oh, that's right, God didn't owe me anything, doesn't owe us breath in our lungs right now, and yet he calls us sons and daughters. He calls us 
beloved, even though we couldn't do anything to deserve it. How then can we lord that over others? The story of this woman caught in adultery is a story in which all of us find compassion. And yet, and yet, this story also demonstrates another important truth. Compassion does not diminish conviction, it informs it. It doesn't diminish conviction. It doesn't mean that we just, oh, it's, it's just fine. Just, let, just follow your heart and let what happens happen. God loves you just the way you are, but far too much to let you stay there. Those of you parents in the room, you know this, that when that child comes into the world, you're, you're amazed at how much you could even love another person, right? And yet, when they do things that are toxic and destructive to them and those around them, you don't wanna just leave them in that because your love is so great. You, you need to call that out in them and you know that tension and God feels this. God loves us exactly the way that we are but too much to let us stay there because Jesus lives in the end. So what does that look like? What does that look like practically to, to really live that out? I got just a few suggestions. The first is this. Um, resist taking the bait. <laughs> it's so easy just to, just to jump on threads and arguments. It's, I mean, I'm right there with you. It's tough. But let's remember this story the next time an argument starts brewing. Secondly, listen to understand. I don't think I'm alone in here that I often listen to respond, Right? Have you ever been in a conversation or maybe even an argument that as that person is stating their case, you're already formulating your rebuttal? What would it look like if we actually listened to understand, to empathize, to better understand where's this person coming from? Because we want them to know that I'm genuinely for you. And then thirdly, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. We don't, discard or devalue our convictions, but we share them with respect. In Ephesians, where this passage, this idea even comes from, it says, speak the truth in love. And just a verse before it, it talks about not being kids anymore, not being children. This is the idea that when we speak the truth in love, sometimes our words sting, right? Sometimes words feel like a hatchet, they feel like a blade, When you come to people with words, are you coming with a hatchet or a scalpel? Both of them cut, but only one of them cuts to heal. If we're for people, we're not coming at them with hatchets. We're speaking tough truths, but we do so with compassion and love and empathy and respect. We wanna be a people who live in the and. Where people are accepted and welcomed exactly where they're at. Because we have this kind of unspoken value here at Community, and maybe you didn't know this, but did you know that we can disagree on politics and religion and music and still fellowship together? And still serve together and still be on mission together? We don't have to always agree on everything. In fact, we know that we're not. But in love, with respect, we remind each other that I'm for you, even though I don't agree with you. We, we don't gather together because our politics are the same or our theology is the same. We gather because of Jesus. 
period. He's the one who offers us true life. He's the one who enables us to bridge that which would make us differently. He is the perfect example of compassion and conviction. And when Jesus is at the center of our lives, we can become a people who live in the end as well. So in a moment, we're, we're gonna celebrate something called communion. And it is a participation and a reminder. It is this sacred mystery of the God of the universe becoming man and paying our penalty on the cross and then raising again and inviting us to the newness of life. One of the things that I love about communion is that we do it together. We sing together, we serve together. And a reminder that we're, we're not on this journey alone. Warts, bruises, wounds, and all. So in a moment, the ushers are gonna pass the trays. I wanna invite you to take a small piece of bread and a small cup of juice and just hold it for a moment. We're gonna sing together and then we're gonna take it all together after we sing. But I want you to meditate, though, on the sacrifice, the life Jesus lived, the death he died, but also the life that he now calls us into as a result. So before the ushers come out, I want to invite you just to, just to close your eyes. Wherever you're at, just close your eyes briefly. Because as we prepare to celebrate communion together, when we receive these elements, the body and blood of Christ, I want to encourage each and every one of us as a family to hear the sound of falling rocks to the floor. Regardless of what story brought you in here this morning, what kind of baggage or shame or guilt you're carrying, maybe the person that you need to forgive is yourself. Maybe it's a family member. But before we celebrate, I want you, I want all of us together to hear the sound of falling rocks. So with your eyes closed, that sin that you're carrying that anger that you're harboring, that shame that you're feeling, and that distance that divides us. That is the sound of compassion being extended from Jesus to you and me. May we experience his grace and mercy in new and powerful ways. And may his compassion be a catalyst for us to show grace and mercy to one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us with that kind of love. We ask God that you would be fully present in this moment. Make us more aware of your Holy Spirit in our very midst. And may we be a people of the and living in the tension between conviction and compassion. We thank you, we love you, and we pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Ushers, you can come.